Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where the Bush series will always be second to none. First things first, I have to let you know, my partner in crime, my cohort, my co-host, Steve Wade, is not with us this week. I think that this move that he's undergoing (laughs) is about to drive him crazy. He's got a bunch of stuff going on right now with moving stuff to his new house, so he kind of begged out this week. But... I'm joined by another former scene staffer. He is one of the true superstars of the NASCAR press corps. And with me this week, I'm really excited about this because he is truly a nice guy. And I believe that he has a viewpoint on this sport that is unmatched. So Jeff Gluck from jeffgluck.com. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'm so happy to have this opportunity to be on with you and, um, reminisce about the scene and things like that because that was probably the best job I've ever had as far as um, going into an office and having co-workers and things like that. I do like what I'm doing now, so I'm not sure I would pass that up, but um, of all the magazines and newspaper type stuff where I worked um, websites before, scene was um, still holds like the top place in my heart, so it's, it's uh, I love what you've been doing with this and and on Twitter and things like that. So I hope that, uh, I hope people are enjoying it as well. And I think that what you just said, that scene was kind of a highlight of people's career. I think most everybody that worked there could say that. I know that's true for me. So Jeff, to start off with, just tell me about your background. Where did you start out in this business? So my first job was in Eastern North Carolina at the Rocky Mount Telegram, which is a small paper about, uh, 50 miles east of Raleigh, and my first year there, you know, it was the kind of, it was the kind of paper, I was there to cover high school sports, of course, yeah. you know, it was, yeah. it was a small, small place, but, you know, being on a small staff like that, they kind of let you also do whatever you wanted, and, and you know, we'd do some ACC coverage, we would do some minor league baseball coverage in the area, and the first year I was there, um, my boss said, uh, hey, you know what, well, I'm going to send you down to the Rockingham race, cover some NASCAR. And at the time, I knew really nothing about NASCAR except that I didn't really like it. Um, <laughs> I, I knew other people liked it, but I just yeah. thought, I, I, I just never, I, I grew up in the Bay Area and in California, and I was never really, never really exposed to it. And I just thought I was kind of, I don't want to watch that. You know, it's stick and ball, you know, I'm a stick and ball guy, and that's it. Um, so, you know, he said, I'm going to send you to Rockingham, and I'm, and, and his thing was, you never know when you're going to need to know how to cover all sorts of different sports. I mean, it could be field hockey, lacrosse, racing, whatever, but at some point in your career, you may be called upon in a bigger paper to be sent somewhere, and you better know how to, you know, the rules of the sport and the the flow of it. So I I was like, all right, I'll I'll go down there. And uh, this was the last Rockingham race in 2004. And, um, you know, I went down there and, and was just one of those things where you're immediately just taken by it. And I, I just thought it was so cool, like the scope of it and the speed and the access. And, uh, I mean, here I am in the driver's meeting and I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> Jeff Gordon and Dale yeah. Jr. who were, you know, a few of the drivers who I knew and they're like right there in the driver's meeting and stuff. And it's just like, man, this is so cool. Like I, I, I'm just, I was really impressed by it. And like, once I got back to the paper, I said, can I start a NASCAR column? I, I know we don't have one in North Carolina. Can I just do like a weekly NASCAR column? And they're like, yeah, sure. We don't care. 
So I just started going to as many races as I could. And, you know, at the time there was still two Darlington races and I would drive to Martinsville, Charlotte, anywhere within driving distance, Richmond, and uh, just cover as many races as I could for the paper then. Now, you said that you're from the Bay Area. What brought you to the right coast? I, uh, I just a job. I mean, okay. I went to school at University of Delaware, and then I got out of school, and, and it's one of those situations where, you know, sports writing jobs, even at small papers, are not easy to find, and I applied all over the country, and I mean, to every opening I could find online, and the Rocky Mount Telegram was the one that was like, all right, yeah, we'll give you a shot, so... <laughs> yeah. I just like, okay, I've never lived in North Carolina, and, you know, I don't know anybody there, but I'm going to go give it a try because I, I, I want to get my start. Now, once you started covering the sport, how long did it take for seeing to kind of come on your radar screen? So I think the very the first year or the second year, like as soon as I got into it, um, one thing that, you know, once I started watching every week and stuff, um, I wanted to buy the NASCAR video game. Uh, so I think, <laughs> yeah. was, I think it was called NASCAR 05 at the time. And so NASCAR 05, at the beginning of the game, they, it's an opening scene and you, you're in New York and you pull up and you're, you're in a streetcar and you look over and you see the video game version of Ryan Newman. And the, your video game character looks down at the seat next to you. And Ryan Newman is on the cover of NASCAR scene. NASCAR scene somehow had like a tie in with the game that year. And so I assumed that, oh, well, NASCAR scene, that must be like the big NASCAR magazine, you know, like the Sports Illustrated NASCAR or something. So it, the, the marketing promotion basically worked. And I subscribed to NASCAR scene based on, oh, this is, this is what you're supposed to subscribe to if you're a NASCAR fan. Um, so I became a subscriber of the magazine and a frequent reader and would just read every single story every week and pretty much had decided at that point after I started subscribing to it that I didn't matter what I was going to do in my career that I was going to work at NASCAR scene. That was my new goal. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah. Join <laughs> the club. Once you started covering the sport, how much of an interest in it did you develop? I mean, what was it that drew you to the sport originally? I think it was, you know, first of all, at the time, um, not to say that I was all about being cool or trendy or something, but this was at a time where it was so on the rise. And, and you know, you would, you would, everywhere you would go, you know, you'd, talk, you'd say something about NASCAR and they'd say, oh, you know, I don't know much about that, but I know it's like America's fastest growing sport. Or like there was this huge open-mindedness to NASCAR, even among the general sports fans at the time. And uh, I think that I was very excited by the the upcoming wave of it. Um, my experiences at the track were so fun and enjoyable, and I just felt like, um, wow, I've been missing out on this all, the, all these years, and this was such a cool thing. And there's huge crowds and really exciting racing, great personalities. And I was just so taken with the whole thing, the week-to-week drama of it. Um, this was the first, the, the year I got into it was the very first year of um, the chase. And so, you know, it was the, the best Richmond cutoff race, it turned out, where Jeremy Mayfield wins his way in. And it was perhaps one of the best playoffs in general, where you had the Kurt Busch, you know, the tire coming off and 
a very dramatic finale, and I thought, this is awesome. I mean, this is so cool. What a cool sport. So I just think everything that was going on back then, and, you know, I mean, the first race I ever went to had a side-by-side finish. I mean, uh, it was Casey Kane and Matt Kenseth, and yeah. um, Matt Kenseth won, and Carl Long at one point in the race flipped down the back stretch and was like, you know, yeah, man, I saw people eating chicken wings in the stands, and I'm just like, man, this is crazy. This is a crazy sport. I just, I just loved it. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. You started covering the sport, I think you said the last Rockingham race in 2004. At what point did you actually make contact with, I guess Jeff Owens was the editor at the time, and at what point did actually working for Scene start becoming possible? Yeah, so I was I was in Rocky Mount, um, and I I took a, a a next level job, I guess, slightly one level up at a paper in um, Southern California, and the job was again covering high school sports, but it was also to be the backup racing writer, and it was basically the this paper uh, basically was the Fontana paper essentially, like they that, it was their home area. So um, all of a sudden now, you know, I'm being able to cover two races at, at Fontana, um, they would send me to Phoenix, Sonoma, Las Vegas. Um, so, you know, I'm getting a chance to do those. And, um, at one point I had asked, I, I'd seen Jeff Owens at the track and, you know, made an introduction. I remember talking to like Bob Pockers and stuff. And I was like, wow, Bob Pockers, I can't believe I'm talking to Bob. You know? <laughs> I was just like starstruck by all these people because I, I was huge fans of all their writing. And uh, they, they were all nice to me. I mean, Kenny Bruce and Mike Henry and all these people. And, you know, I, I was just like a fanboy, basically. But I, I decided to do a story on um, the race after the race, which was, you know, the race to get to their, the Jets and how they escaped the track and things like that and beat each other back to Charlotte. So, I, you know, a couple races that year, I every, you know, media availability, I asked the drivers about these this issue, this topic, and I was able to do a whole feature off it, basically, um, without ever getting a one-on-one interview or anything. And so I, I completely wrote the story, and then I just sent it to Jeff Owens and, you know, said, here's a freelance submission. You know, I would love to have this in scene, you know, not thinking they would actually take it. And Jeff said, yeah, wow, this is, this is really cool. And they, they, uh, published it with artwork. And, um, I was like, wow, I got a story in scene. And, uh, when Mark Ashenfelter left, uh, the next year to go to ESPN, um, I heard about the job opening actually from Jenna Fryer. She said, um, hey, you know, she messaged me and said, I, I heard this job opening at scene. So I immediately uh, messaged Jeff Owens. And, and I think because of that story, they, they had already heard of me and kind of knew who I was. And so um, they brought me in at the start of the 2007 season. And I thought I basically like hit the career jackpot. I was so excited. And I moved from California to Charlotte and started there in 2007 until the, the end of scene. Uh, the first week of 2010. 
Do you remember when that story was that you wrote about drivers escaping the track? It would be sometime in um, sometime in 2006, but okay. I'm not sure like when in 2006 it was. Uh, I'm sure I have the issue somewhere. I probably have like five copies of it somewhere because <laughs> I just, at that time was like the biggest moment of my entire life. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, it was cool because at, at that time when the team was doing really well and they had like a, some sort of like an artist on staff and like I said they they. The guy like put a, a drawing that went with it of like drivers running to their airplanes and stuff, like a little cartoon. And it looks the layout was beautiful on it too. And I, I was just like, this is just amazing. That was a great intro into scene because I can remember Del Earnhardt after a race. <laughs> you, you did not want to get between Del Earnhardt and the airport. Getting between him and the finish line was one thing, but getting in his way on the way to the airport, now that was something else. You did not want to mess with that <laughs> yeah. at all. Now, Jeff, when you started at scene, I would assume that you were doing general assignment type stuff, features, and then, of course, race coverage. Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, they were sending, gosh, probably had to be four or five of us to the track each week. And so, um, yeah, I don't think it was like I started off writing cup race leads or anything like that, but they didn't, um, you know, they, they weren't like, all right, you're just going to be the truck series guy or something or the Xfinity series guy. I mean, they let me cover all three series right away. Um, so I was very fortunate there and I would pretty much just, you know, try to do sidebars or news stuff. And I mean, it was such a dream. I mean, you know, I remember first race I went to, um, they sent us to Phoenix and we're staying at like this nice hotel. And at the time, for <laughs> yeah. whatever reason, they would, I guess we just had so much money or something, but they would let us fly in to any, any race, uh, Texas or further West. They would let us fly in a day early so we could get adjusted to the time so we could be at our best for the whole race weekend. So we like, we flew to Phoenix on a Wednesday and we're like all sitting around the pool, this like resort. And we're like eating a nice restaurant and I'm like, this is the life. Are you kidding me? Um, you know, 300 something dollar a night hotel. Everybody had their own room. Everybody had their own car. Cause at the time steam was like still printing money basically. And, uh, it was just like this, uh, surreal experience. I got so spoiled in those first couple of years. And, um, I was just like, man, I'm, I'm on the road and here I am going out to dinner with, you know, Jeff and Mike Hembry and Kenny Bruce and Bob Pockris and Chris Johnson and all these people. I'm just like, this is unbelievable. Like, I, it was just so surreal. It's funny you say that because my first race was seen was in Atlanta, the last race of the year in 1994. And Deb Williams and I went to dinner at the hotel that night. And I was looking at the menu and she asked me what I was going to have. And I you know, I was kind of timid and I said, you know, I, I think I'll just have a hamburger. And she looked at me uh -huh. kind of funny and she said, is that what you want? And I said, well, it's the cheapest thing on the menu. And she told me, she said, our bosses understand that we work hard to racetrack. And if you want something else to eat, if it's a little more expensive, go for it. You can have whatever you want. And I'm, te <laughs> and I'm telling you, I took her up on that. <laughs> I knew That's where awesome. I knew where every Chinese buffet was on the Winston Cup circuit. You know, in all seriousness, how much of an adjustment was it from covering, you know, a handful of races a year to basically being at every race? I think at the time I was so 
enthusiastic. You know, there was no, there was no burnout. I was young. I think I, I was, I was 27 or 26, I think when I started. So I, there was no burnout. I was single, you know, I'm just like completely, I, I had a hundred percent energy and enthusiasm. I would wake up every single day of the race weekend, just raring to go to the track. And so to me, it was just a hundred percent dream. There was no, you know, later in your career or something, when you do something over and over and over again, you know, it, it, the routine part sinks in and any, you know, my, my theory has always been that it doesn't matter what you do. Anything can sort of get tired after a while. It doesn't matter if you're a, an actor who is going to the Oscars, you know, the first time you go to the Oscars, it's amazing. And you're like, I can't believe it. But probably like the 20th year that you go to the Oscars, you're like, Oh gosh, I got to get dressed up again and shake these people's hands and smile for the cameras, you know? So I feel like it, it doesn't matter what job that can always, you know, you know, get old after a while once you've done it enough times. But in that first year, in those first years, I was just so happy to be doing what I was doing and just living such a dream that, um, I just don't think I, I ever even thought about the adjustment. I just was like going full steam ahead, working as hard as I could, um, trying to make every single story, like, you know, an award winner, you know, I was like, yeah. I got to match yeah. Mike Henry, which I was totally incapable of doing, but, uh, I tried anyway, you know, the scene came out once a week. So there was a time constraint there. The paper came out on Thursday. So if news broke between your deadline on Monday and the day that it came out, you know, you were kind of out of luck. And by the time the next issue rolled around, you know, it would be old news. That was just the way weekly newspapers worked. At what point did you sense a shift from scenes focus on race coverage to maybe more feature oriented coverage? Well, I think it sort of, um, it sort of was a conjunction with, uh, or like the intersection of when the internet started to, yeah. and they got seen daily.com because at the time they, we didn't have to like the magazine writers, so to speak, didn't really have to do any of the web writing. So they hired people to do the, the web basically. And like even the news stuff. So, you know, you'd get these driver avail- availabilities at the track and you'd tape record them. And then instead of writing them to the website, you would just send the audio back to the people at the office and say, here you go, write up this media availability because that was like considered like beneath the magazine writers to have to deal with the day-to-day news type stuff because it was like, we need to do the features. We need to do the big picture pieces, you know? So we need to be freed up enough to go really talk to the sources and get the meaty type stuff. So there was people sitting back at the office who were doing like the stuff that was probably actually getting the clicks at the time. Um, you know, Oh, Dale Jr. is in media availability. Well, you know, let's somebody's in the office is writing that based off the audio we sent. And I think so then it was sort of like, we need to do more analysis and the, and the feature type stuff. Um, you know, and, and really it was Mike Hembry, I think, was sort of like the ace. So if something big would come up, like Juan Pablo Montoya, you know, they're, they're going to send him to Colombia and follow him around in his home country or whatever. Um, Chris Johnson was an excellent feature writer as well. And they'd have him do some stuff. Um, I, I don't think that I was the best feature writer. I would try, but I just don't think that I, I just didn't have the writing chops that some of the better writers did. I mean, that, there was some, you know, world-class type people on that staff. So 
I, I think I was better just on the like opinion column analysis type stuff it, that just suited me a little bit better. Now, Jeff, <laughs> I don't exactly know how to say this, but you are the undisputed master of social media. What you have done with your platform is just absolutely incredible. And, and I commend you for that. I wish I could bottle that up and drink some of it myself because it's a hard thing to figure out. When did that first start developing for you? So in early 2009, um, things were starting to go south with the paper. You know, the, the paper had gotten thinner. They had stopped printing the money, I guess you could say, because, uh, you know, the economy had gone south in 08. And um, the advertising wasn't coming in like it was. Um, and so, you know, it was obvious that something was going to happen. There was going to be some sort of a shift at some point in 09. We didn't know if we were going to make it through the year without having big layoffs or whatever. And they started Twitter accounts for each of us. Every single person had to have a Twitter account. And um, they told us in early 2009, they said, now the better that you guys do at this new social media thing at Twitter, the more likely chance you will have at keeping your job Holy cow. when these wow. sort of inevitable yeah. layoffs come. And so I threw myself into social media because of that. I, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do everything I can to figure this thing out and do all these updates because I felt like it was a way to keep my job. Turns out, uh, even though I thought I did good at social media, a, a good job at it, uh, they laid me off anyway when the layoffs came and they kept seeing daily only and cut the magazine. I was one of the people that got cut. So, um, it didn't really help, <laughs> but it, it helped my career because it, it set me up for the next steps to come. It just didn't help me keep my job at, at scene. Jeff, looking back on your career at scene, I know it's a hard question to answer because I would have the same kind of difficulty, but you had to have developed some just amazing memories of the people that you worked with, some of the experiences that you had. Is there any way to point out maybe one or two most memorable moments for you from your career at scene? This is kind of a weird one that sticks out because it's so normal and routine, but I thought, I think I took this for granted at the time and it's never happened and not, not even close to happen to any job I was ever in for the rest of my career. But every single day around 11 a.m., we would start to wander around, wander to Jeff's office or Jeff would wander out and we'd all start talking about where we were going to go to lunch that day, somewhere around <laughs> uptown Charlotte or nearby. Yeah. yeah. And everybody would you know, somebody would reach a consensus and maybe not everybody would agree, but everybody in the office, I mean, you know, 10 people more, we'd pile into two or three cars and we all go to lunch together pretty much every single day. I mean, it was remarkable the camaraderie there, everybody getting along, no egos, no thinking, Oh God, well, we can't stand this guy. You know what I mean? Or, Oh, everybody's cool. Except this one jerk. I mean, it was just a, <laughs> beautiful <laughs> yeah. staff of, uh, of the chemistry. Um, I mean, may, Hey, maybe, maybe I was the annoying one, but I didn't, I wasn't annoyed <laughs> by anybody else. I, yeah. I was just like, this is so cool. We would, we would go on, um, 
golf trips together. We would go, we had a, a whitewater rafting day, you know, with everybody together, uh, like a company thing. Um, we went down to Key West. Everybody flew into Miami a day early for Homestead. And led by Jeff, we went down to Key West. I mean, it was like just the bond that you had with all your coworkers. Like everybody was friends and got along. And it was just so remarkable. I, I just thought, oh, wow, this is how all jobs are, you know. It, and it was so wrong, obviously. Um, I don't think I'll ever be able to replicate that for the rest of my life. But um, that was just such a special time because these people were just so close to you, you know, and, and they were just your coworkers. Jeff, do you have a favorite story that you wrote at scene? Um, my favorite story that I ever wrote was, um, it was about Scott Speed. He was just starting to come into... Uh, the NASCAR world um, and I got to follow him they flew me down to uh, uh, this Red Bull thing where he was a judge and I at the time you know now it's kind of funny because this story would be kind of lame actually it, it were a cliche by today's standards but um, I decided to do like a, a feature type story except like as a list and I wrote a story called 10 Things You Won't Like About Scott Speed. Um, and I basically, you know, or 10 Things NASCAR Fans Will Hate About Scott Speed. And uh, they were actually kind of cool things, but it's just, the point of the story was like, you know, NASCAR fans are going to take this guy as nuts and, you know, they won't like him. It was it was a kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but I, I worked my butt off on the story and really, really tried to make it stylized and fresh and... and um, uh, I got a lot of uh, compliments within the office on it, and and uh, I still think it's probably one of the best things I've ever written now. Um, but I remember, like, even, you know, the publisher and people like that were commenting on it and saying that it was really cool. And that made me feel so good because, as I mentioned, all the the, the people in that office were so talented and to feel like, wow, I, I contributed to this and... Um, I did something good, you know, I was just like over the moon about it. So I think that was maybe an 08 or something, but, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a special memory as well. You've talked about being kind of a, a kid in a candy store when you started at scene and kind of being in awe of your surroundings, so to speak. At what point did you kind of look around and say, you know what? I kind of belong here. Uh, probably too soon. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I don't think, you know, I think I probably, I probably had too much of an ego or thought too highly of myself at the time. I think that's a disease that some young people are afflicted with before they really realize how the world works. Um, I think I, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably back it down a few notches. But at the time, I thought I was hot stuff and, you know, I, I don't know why, but... Um, I, I, I'm a lot more humble now, but I just think, you know, at, at the time I had, you know, it's just like a young driver coming in to, to a series and thinking that, well, damn, you know, you know I'm going to do it my way and this is my racetrack too. And I'm going to race like this. And the veterans are like, all right, that's not, that's not how you race necessarily. You need to learn a few lessons. But, um, you know, I thought that, that I was going to bring this approach and do things like that and, and, I'd, I'd be curious to go back and see 
you know, get some honest opinions from those guys as what they really thought about me at the time. Cause I look back and I just cringe on some of the stuff I would say or, but, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think <laughs> I, I didn't necessarily have the humility that, uh, I should have at the time. How has your work changed over the years? Because when you were at scene, basically you had one deadline a week. Now you work in an era in which there is no deadline. It is a 24-7 news cycle. Well, I mean, for one thing, as you mentioned, you know, we, like, for instance, we used to have every, every Tuesday we have off at scene because the paper, we, uh, the copy was due Sunday night. We put the magazine to bed on Monday. We'd work all day, edit it, and it would go out, you know, Monday afternoon to the, to the printer. And Tuesday was a, a down day. We, then we'd reconvene Wednesday to have a staff meeting. So we had like a legit Tuesday off every Tuesday. And there's no way you could have a day off now in NASCAR. I mean, you yeah. could risk it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But to have a regular day off where you could go play golf, as, as we did with a bunch of coworkers on, on every Tuesday, we'd meet at the same course and stuff. I mean, there's no way you could just be away from your phone for five hours at a time and have no cares in the world. But, you know, the bottom line was if news happened on that Tuesday, we weren't getting it into the next week's paper, as you mentioned. So there was no website to worry about. There was no urgency because, yeah, you could do some reporting and make some calls or something like that. But, you know, you weren't going to be writing it till the weekend anyway. And once you got to the track, you'd get more of a scope. And, you know, by that time, it, since the news was already out, it was more like it was a brief or something like that. You'd figure everybody already knew. So once the Internet came along and the job turned into, you know, essentially 24-7, because it doesn't matter if Tony Stewart breaks his leg and it's 3 a.m. and, you know, some sprint car race and, you know, you're riding in the middle of the night or whatever, um, it's, you know, you have to be on call. You have to be up on it because otherwise your audience is like, where are you at? You know, there's yeah. just never stops. So yeah. I've learned how to manage that a lot better. I feel like over the years, but, um, there was sort of a, a blissful ignorance for sure at, at scene because, you know, I just thought, you know, man, this is, <laughs> it's kind of nice. I mean, you, you work really hard, but then you, you actually have a, a day to breathe. And, uh, those, those, those days are definitely gone. Jeff, give me a plug for what you're doing now at jeffgluck.com. Yeah, so, you know, now it's a much different situation because I'm on my own, except instead of Jeff Owens as the boss, you know, I have over a thousand bosses, essentially. Yeah. And um, doing the Patreon thing, as you are familiar with. and um, Listen, I'm not know, nearly as good at it as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because, you know, going back to the what I was talking about earlier with them forcing us to get on Twitter... Um, or, or urging us to get on Twitter, you know. Once I got laid off from scene, which was one of the worst days of my entire life, and I thought my career was over. Um, at the time, though, I had built up enough of a little Twitter audience, you know, maybe like 3,000 followers or something, that that attracted the attention of another website, um, sbnation.com, which was just starting out. So I got hired by them, and then I grew that coverage and got hired by USA Today, and then the audience I built, you know, through social media at both those platforms when I left USA Today 
try to start my own thing, I had enough of a following, thankfully, um, to ask people if they wouldn't be willing to support a new venture. And so that's how I ended up doing this with the JeffGluck.com stuff and my podcast. And I'm just really, really lucky it's worked out that way. Um, and, you know, it's seen... If I had never got laid off from scene or had gotten laid off a little bit later, I actually don't think it would have worked out as well. But, you know, I was bitter for years over the way scene ended just because I mentioned, you know, it's the best job. And I was so hurt to get booted out when the magazine closed. I, I really thought I deserved to stay at the website. And, but, it, it, you know, it's one of those things that was a blessing in disguise, perhaps. Life is fixing to change in a big way for you. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I'm supposedly less than four weeks from being a dad for the first time. I'm a little bit of a, on the older side for a first-time dad. I'm 38 years old. But, um, you know, I I think it's going to be very interesting, you know, to see how that affects things and how that affects my view on traveling and things like that. I mean, obviously, the amount of traveling we do, um, it's not always great. If you have a family, you know you can you can see it with other writers how hard it is for them who have family. So I've never been in that situation. I'll be curious to see how it affects me, but um, I'm excited. You know, I'm excited to see how that changes things and gives me a different purpose for life. Um, so much of my life to this point's been really career oriented. So um, I think it's going to be a big big change. Obviously, Jeff, is there anything else that you would like to add? Anything in particular? Well, I really hope that, you know, the people listening to this, not to advertise your own thing on your own podcast, but um, I, I think that the, the archives of scene, which I would go into on, you know, lunch breaks and things like that sometimes, or afternoons where I was procrastinating, I mean, it's really like the history of NASCAR in, in the pages of scene. So, you know, I hope people support this and what you're trying to do. Um, I, you know, there's, there's, I would hate to see that lost, not preserved. I think it's really important, so I wish you the best of luck in, in, uh, in trying to get that going. Listeners, I don't know about you, but I truly did enjoy that conversation with Jeff. I never had the pleasure of working with him at scene, but he is a heck of a nice guy, and I can honestly see why so many people take to him on social media, Patreon, the whole nine yards. He is a genuinely good guy. And it's easy to see that he truly does care about the sport that he's covering. So you heard the man. He said, support the Scene Vault podcast and the Scene Vault. So patreon.com slash the Scene Vault or paypal.me slash the Scene Vault podcast. Anything that you can do, I would truly appreciate. Now, speaking of which, on Patreon... I'm not asking for $5 anymore. I'm not asking for $10 anymore, necessarily. You can do $5. You can do $10 if you want. But here's the deal. I'm asking for a dollar a month. That's all. A dollar a month. That's not even enough to buy a Diet Pepsi down at the local convenience store. If you care about NASCAR history, if you think it ought to be preserved and not kicked to the curb, that's why I'm here. I'm here to help preserve NASCAR history through this podcast, through the scene vault, hopefully you will agree and kick in a buck a month. That's it. That's all I'm asking, a dollar a month. So that being said, we'll see you next week.